Welcome to SuccessfulSavior.org, the ministry of Harmony Primitive Baptist Church in Donaldson, Arkansas. This is Elder Dan Sammons preaching in our regular Sunday morning service. In a recent sermon, I made reference to the fact that you can't be a shepherd without doing math. If you've got 100 sheep, you've got to be able to count them. Because if you can't count them and you don't know them by name, how do you know? I mean, can you look at a herd of sheep and say, that's 99 and not 100? Or do they all just go, well, it's just a clump, right? Shepherding requires math. You've got to be able to count, and you've got to be able to figure out who's there and who's not. So math is kind of embedded in the idea of doing shepherding. And as I thought about this subject some more, I began to realize that the Bible speaks about math as well, and it speaks about it in the realm of discipleship. So this sermon is really entitled Kingdom Math. Here's some of the math that you find in the Word of God that's going to exist in your life as you try to live in the kingdom of God. When I talk about math, I'm talking about addition, subtraction, division, and multiplication. And hopefully we'll hit all of those today. Let's talk about addition first. Addition is something that we find that's going on in the kingdom of God. If we look at the book of Acts, chapter 2, starting in verse 41, we find this testimony. Then they that gladly received His word were baptized, and the same day there were added unto them about 3,000 souls. Well, that's a fundamental of the kingdom of God. There's going to be some addition going on. And in this instance, we are adding members to the church. They are baptized. They heard the gospel. Acts 2 is a pretty familiar text for us. We pull a lot of observations and lessons out of that. But verse 41 tells us that there were added unto them about 3,000 souls. I think we'll find further on in this text, those people were added to the church. Now, I've heard it suggested that, well, they gladly received His Word, were baptized, and the same day they were added unto them about 3,000 souls. I've heard it suggested that there were people who uh, were baptized, but that number might be different than those who were added, which is 3,000. It doesn't say there were 3,000 baptized. It says there were 3,000 added. I don't believe that. I believe those who were baptized were added to the church. That may be moderately controversial among some primitive Baptists, but I don't see the liberty of interpretation there to say that there's any disconnect in that number. I believe those who were baptized on that day at Pentecost were added to the church, and that was 3,000 souls. So there's going to be some addition going on in the kingdom of God. We had some addition that transpired last year in this outpost of the kingdom. And we're thankful for that. That is how it is supposed to be. But what did those people who were added do? They continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine and in fellowship and in breaking of bread and in prayers. That is the, you know, kind of the four pillars of what we are to be about in the Lord's New Testament church. The apostles' doctrine, fellowship, that means having involvement with one another, really trying to figure out what's going on in each other's lives, being able to pray for one another, share our concerns and uh, prayer requests with one another. Breaking of bread, that's not just the sacraments, that's also, I believe, spending time just eating with one another, which is one of the main social activities of human beings. We just like to sit down and eat and talk to one another, and I think that's a big part of how you have that fellowship. A lot of times when I want to talk to uh, someone, I will try to schedule time to go eat with them. And I would recommend you do the same. You don't have to go to a restaurant. You can just go somewhere and, you know, make a couple of sandwiches and sit down and eat. It's a good way to talk to people. I don't know if you've ever thought about this, but having 
a meal going on there, it kind of takes some of the complexity or difficulty of talking to someone off the table because you have another activity that you're doing and it's pleasant and you got to eat anyway. And, you know, if you just sit down and say, well, I got to talk to you and you just sit down in a room with them and you're in a chair right across from them and you're looking at each other, boy, that seems pretty loaded, doesn't it? And that could maybe make people bristle a little bit. That's probably not the best approach. So uh, avail yourself of getting to know people through the practice of eating things. And I think we see that practiced in the Bible. I think the Lord liked to eat with His disciples. There's a lot of examples of them eating things together. I suspect there was a lot of fellowship among the Lord's people and between the disciples and the Lord Jesus Christ that's not recounted in the Bible. We see little glimpses of it. But I bet they had a lot of fellowship where they're just sitting around eating together. I bet they got to know the Lord much better in that way. And in prayer. So prayers, you know, we need to be praying for one another, praying with one another. Pray with one another. One thing that I'm guilty of, if I'm to be honest with it, it's easier to tell somebody you're going to pray for them than to pray for them. Have you ever said, yeah, I'll pray for you in that, and then you never gave it another thought? I'm just going to confess to you, here's your pastor. I've done it. I get it. You know, a lot of times it's better just to say, well, why don't we just pray? <laughs> right? And the Lord said, you don't have to multiply words or come up with some great treatise in your prayer. You know, that's part of the problem. I think we set the bar sometimes too high in prayer. Well, I've got to come up with some great explanation to God. Well, God, who are we praying to? God knows better than you do. Sometimes you just need to put your arm around a brother, bow your head and say, Lord, here's the situation. We trust you in it. Here's how we'd like to see things turn out. But you know what? Thy will be done. We're putting it before you. We trust you. You'll never leave us nor forsake us. You will provide those things that are needful to us. And that's an act of worship. So this is part of why addition is important. People need to be added into God's church, not because they're checking some box. Well, I'm a church member now. Or, well, now I'm going to heaven because I joined the church. I was baptized, so now I'm going to heaven. That's not what it's about. It's about getting into these other practices, right? It's about beginning to understand the apostles' doctrine, something about the benefits of fellowship and breaking bread and praying for one another. Praying is a very worshipful thing. So this is part of the purpose of addition. Verse 43, And fear came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were done by the apostles. You know what? If you weren't added, you wouldn't have seen any of that, would you? You believe there aren't some blessings in the Lord's house that you're going to miss out on if you're not added to the assembly? There's stuff going on in the Lord's house that uh, there's people who aren't here today. They're missing out on it. If there's any kind of wisdom or truth from the Word of God that's being imparted from this pulpit today, the Lord has visited with us in some respect. If you're not here, you missed it. That's just all there is to it. And I, I hear from people all the time saying, you know, I'm spiritually cold. It just feels like God is distant. Draw nigh to God, He will draw nigh unto you. That's what the Bible says. A lot of times that distance is nothing more than an expression of how we have decided to distance ourselves from God. So this is part of the importance of addition. And all that believed were together and had all things in common and sold their possessions and goods and parted them to all men as every man had need. Well, what if you had need and you weren't there and you hadn't been at it and they don't know anything about your need? You weren't a partaker in any of that. You didn't get any of the benefits of it. See the importance of addition. And they continuing daily with one accord in the temple and breaking bread from house to house did eat their meat with gladness and singleness of heart. If you weren't there and weren't at it, you were missing out on some gladness and singleness of heart. Well, one of the biggest problems in our society today is depression. 
People are depressed and discouraged about things. And then they won't press into the kingdom of God as they ought. And they miss out on eating their meat with gladness and singleness of heart. They miss out on something that's available to them. It's the importance of being added. Praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to the church daily such as should be saved. That's talking about people being saved from all those things in the world that when you're just out there in the world and you don't have a church, you don't have a Christian community of people who care and believe the same things and are trying to follow the Lord, you're out there kind of in this hellish world dealing with the trouble that's out there. And um, you can be saved from that. You can be saved from that through addition. Now, there's some things we're not to add. Look at Proverbs chapter 30. We're told to not add some things. Proverbs chapter 30 and verse 6. Let's start in verse 5. Every word of God is pure. He is a shield unto them that put their trust in Him. Well, that sounds good. I don't think there's any old Baptist who's going to oppose that. We believe we have the preserved Word of God, do we not? It's inspired, inerrant, and we have it in our possession. And it's good. Verse 6. Add thou not unto His words, lest He reprove thee, and thou be found a liar. And we've got to be careful about how we handle the Word of God. We have the Word of God, and this says don't add to it. You get in a lot of trouble by adding to the Word of God. You get in a lot of trouble trying to handle the topic of what constitutes adding to the Word of God. Let me give you an example. You might say, forsake not the assembling of yourselves together. Is that in the Word of God? Forsake not the assembling of yourselves together. Be there at 1030, thus saith the Lord. Now wait a minute. Have I added something there? The Bible does not say meet at 1030. So I've added something in there, and now I've appended thus saith the Lord to the end of it. Okay? By the way, there's nothing wrong with meeting at 1030. But if we're not going to add to the Word of God, what we ought to say is, forsake not the assembling of yourselves together. Thus saith the Lord, we're meeting at 1030, and you ought to be there. See that? You see how I move that second piece? And you say, well, that's trivial, brother. Why, why would you make such a big deal? Well, that's how it starts, right? You take something that the Word of God says, and you start to cram a little bit more into it, and then you say, thus saith the Lord. And that 1030 example is relatively trivial, probably wouldn't cause any great problems in the church or whatever. But over time, if you become comfortable with importing additional content into the Word of God, and then saying, thus saith the Lord after it, all of a sudden, you've got a church that's way off the mark from what the Word of God says, and they've now created their own law that's embedded into that, and they're saying that's what the Word of God says. That is what we're warned against. So it's not a bad thing to meet at 1030. I'm not saying that. I'm not going to say, well, we're going to need 1045. I need a little more time to get here. I'm not saying any of that. We do that to be orderly. It's a tradition that we have done here that arises from orderliness, and we are supposed to do things in an orderly fashion. But if we begin to say, thus saith the Word of God, you've got to meet at 1030, that's adding things to the Word of God. That is not part of God's immutable counsel. And I suspect that, first of all, if you went back through human history and the church, the vast majority of Christian people who were church members, they didn't have a watch. Okay? They didn't have a clock. You know, they didn't have any way to know what 1030 was. So there have been other ways of meeting, and they've met at different times of the day throughout church history. So that's not an immutable thing. So we need to be careful about how we handle 
those things. And we need to accept that we are not to add to the Word of God in that way. Many errant Christian denominations really fall into that category. You allow them to import things into the Word of God, then you let it stretch out over 100 years, 200 years, 1,000 years, and then you start looking at their doctrine, and it's just got all this stuff in it. It's got nothing to do with what the Word of God says. By the way, if we're primitive Baptists and that name means anything, that means that we are based on what we find here, not in those things that are imported in, and we need to be mindful of that. Let's look at subtraction. John chapter 6. Uh, this is one that comes up as well, and it's, it's a little disturbing, to be honest with you. When God's people hear the Lord tell them something, they believe it, unquestioningly believe it, and they never waver from it. And the moment Jesus Christ says something to you, you're going to believe it, and that's all she wrote, because that's how it is. How could you possibly be God's people and not believe something that the Lord said? Well, that's ridiculous. The fact of remaining sin in all of our lives proves that we don't always believe what the Lord told us to the degree that we put it into practice. So we're kind of warned against these things. In John chapter 6, we see this testimony, verse 60. Now, I won't belabor what was preached before that, but it was Jesus declaring, I am the bread of life. And the way he preached that was such that people didn't really want to hear it. He's really preaching his absolute sovereignty in the salvation of his people. And if you have a society that's been trained in the Judaism of their day, which is all about kind of law-keeping to be righteous, that message, mm, kind of a sour note in their ears. But Jesus has preached He's the bread of life. And we preach these things. It says in verse 60, Many therefore of His disciples, when they heard this, said, This is an hard saying. Who can hear it? Now these are the disciples, right? These are not the scoffers. These are people who were following Jesus. There are his disciples, and they say, this is a hard saying, who can hear this? When Jesus knew in himself that his disciples murmured at it, he said unto them, doth this offend you? Have you ever heard the Lord say anything that offends you? If your answer to that is no, there's only a few ways I could figure that out. You're either not listening, or you haven't been within earshot of what the Lord has said, or you're living in sinless perfection such that nothing the Lord ever said could ever possibly offend you because you're in total agreement at all times. There's going to be things we find in the Word of God that are going to offend us and kind of rub us a little bit the wrong way, but that doesn't make it untrue. That just means we're a little out of round with respect to what we believe, and we ought to conform our lives to what we've been taught rather than doubling down on our offense. I've been offended by the Word of God a time or two, and um, I suspect it's not the final time in my life. I bet I'm going to be offended by it a few more times. And when that offense comes up, it's an opportunity for me to step back and say, am I really doing the right thing here? <laughs> How much do I really believe this? Is it just I'm going to pick and choose the things that Jesus said that I'm the most fond of, or am I going to say, you know what, I need to get over this offense, and I need to do and believe what the Lord taught me to believe? What? And if ye shall see the Son of Man ascend up where He was before, it is the Spirit that quickeneth, the flesh profiteth nothing. That's the part they're really bristling at. That's like Jesus saying, look, I'm the one who's doing the work of eternal salvation here. It's a spiritual thing. It's my work. It's not your work in trying to keep the law. 
It's not how you're trying to present yourself before people and all the prayers you're doing on the street corner and broadening your phylacteries and trying to make this big display of religion. It's not that. Now, if you've been raised in this idea that the law is your, uh, you know, this errant form of Judaism, if you will, where they're saying keeping the law is what's going to make you righteous, that's going to be an offensive notion to you when Jesus comes in and says, it's all about me and what I'm going to do. The words I speak unto you, they are spirit and they are life. But there are some of you that believe not, for Jesus knew from the beginning who they were that believed not and who should betray him. You know, the Lord knows about the unbelief we harbor in our own hearts. That's kind of a frightening thought when you think about it. But it should encourage you to confess your own unbelief. When you're struggling with these things, you're offended by what the Word of God says, you know you're trying to battle against what's plainly stated. You should step back and say, Lord, you know this is, this is how I am. Please conform me to your will in this matter. Correct me. Help me to get beyond this. I believe he will. And he said, Therefore said I unto you that no man can come to me except it were given unto him of my Father. You see how the Lord is doubling down on this thing. No man can come to me. That is a highly offensive notion. Even in the broader world of Christianity. Christianity is by and large out there saying, anybody can come. Just got to decide to come. And when you preach this, even within the domain of Christianity today, a lot of Christian people are offended by it. They're offended by it. They're going to say, this says no man can come. Well, the reason many are offended by it is because if this is true, and it is, this is what Jesus taught, it completely undermines the precepts of the form of Christianity they're out there teaching. And they've got to really step back and change a lot about what they're teaching and what they understand. But you can see why they're offended by it. You know people today who believe similar things and they're offended by the teaching that salvation is by the grace of God, even in our time. Therefore said I unto you that no man can come unto me except it were given unto him of my Father. From that time, many of his disciples went back and walked no more with him. They rejected this notion. That's still going on today, but that's taking place among the disciples there. It's a distressing and disturbing observation, but there it is. So there's some subtraction that goes on. Let's look at another example. 1 Corinthians chapter 5. There's a little bit of subtraction going on here. And this is not very pleasant. Of course, everybody knows about Matthew 18, 15 and the verses that follow that talk about people under church discipline. And there's church discipline that is a means whereby people are subtracted from the roles of the church. It's an unpleasant reality, but that's one of Jesus' teachings as well. Does this, does, you know, doth this offend you? It's, it's again, it's, it's one of the things Jesus taught. But here's kind of an example. Um, it is reported commonly that there is fornication among you, and such fornication as is not so much as named among the Gentiles, that one should have his father's wife. Well, that's a nasty little story right there. That is just terrible. This is in the Lord's New Testament church. I think God's people don't have a bunch of problems. Uh, that's a terrible testimony. And ye are puffed up and have not rather mourned that he that hath done this deed might be taken away from, from among you. There's some subtraction that should be taking place here. For I verily, as absent in body, but present in spirit, have judged already as though I were present concerning him that hath done this deed. 
in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, when you are gathered together in my spirit with the power of our Lord Jesus Christ to deliver such an one unto Satan for the destruction of the flesh that the spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord Jesus. That's a harsh statement, but Paul's talking about kicking some people out of the church because they are willfully and openly persisting in this sort of sin and there's nothing being done about it. I mean, it's just outrageous. I mean, I honestly think if something like that were going on in our church, it wouldn't be long before people would be like, this is not, we've got to do something about this, right? But a church can be so far gone on things and so far removed from how they're managing the truth and how they ought to maintain discipline in the church that people are just like, oh, let's just turn a blind eye to what's going on there. And it seems what's going on in the Corinthian church. Let's look a little further. Your glorying is not good. Know ye not that a little leaven leaveneth the whole lump. Purge out therefore the old leaven, that you may be a new lump, as ye are unleavened. For even Christ our Passover is sacrificed for us. Therefore let us keep the feast, not with old leaven, neither with leaven of malice and wickedness, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. I wrote unto you in an epistle not to company with fornicators, yet not altogether with fornicators of this world, or the covetous, or extortioners, or with idolaters. For then ye must needs go out of the world. And he's like, look, I know this is out there. There's people who do this sort of stuff. You're going to go to work. You're going to be around people who are doing these sorts of things all the time. You can't kind of have a monastic life that says, I can't be anywhere in the presence of anyone who is an idolater or a fornicator or whatever, because you'd have to literally fly off of this planet to make that happen. So that's not what he's saying. He's talking about within the confines of the kingdom of God, there's certain behaviors that should not be tolerated. Verse 11, but now I have written unto you not to keep company. If any man that is called a brother be a fornicator or covetous or an idolater or a railer or a drunkard or an extortioner with such an one, know not to eat. For what have I to do to judge them also that are without? Do not ye judge them that are within? It's kind of crazy for the church to stand up and say those types of behaviors are absolutely ridiculous and sinful and all that sort of stuff. That's out in the world. But then we allow and entertain people who are actively practicing those sorts of sins and openly practicing them to remain members in good standing in the church. Right? That's Paul's point. That, that can't be. But them that are without God judgeth. Therefore put away from among yourselves that wicked person. Paul's saying this person's got to be kicked out of the church. That's some subtraction. Now that's an unpleasant reality, but it's true. One of the Temptations of the devil in such instances is to convince people that the right thing to do is to ignore. And the Bible does make some statements about overlooking the fault of another, but it's clearly not talking about this sort of instance where there's a rampant, open, blatant sexual sin that's going on in the church. That's not what it's talking about. It's talking about we all are imperfect and we rub each other the wrong way in a bunch of different ways and things like that. And if we aren't able to overlook some faults in one another, I mean, our gears are just going to grind to a halt. That ability to overlook one another's faults is kind of like the social lubrication in the church that keeps the gears moving along and helps us work together. It doesn't mean that something that's completely beyond the pale in someone's behavior could not result in there being 
subtracted from the kingdom of God by removing them from the church, and that's what Paul's talking about. So that's subtraction. Uh, that's an unpleasant one. But another one that's like it, look at Romans chapter 16 and verse 17. Now we're getting into division. We've covered addition and subtraction. The kingdom involves some aspects of division as well. Verse 17, Now I beseech you, brethren, mark them which cause divisions and offenses contrary to the doctrine which you have learned, and avoid them. This is something that comes up in the Lord's church. There are doctrinal issues that come up where people start to teach a false doctrine and it begins to divide the church, has a dividing effect. They draw away the naive. The history of Christianity is littered with examples of church splits and dissensions and all sorts of differences. Not all of them, by the way, have to do with people preaching false doctrine in terms of, well, we decided that the atonement is universal instead of limited, and now the church is split and we're, we're two separate churches. Not all of them fall into that category. A lot of them are just divisions and dissensions because people behave like children. And they have petty offenses, and they don't overlook one another's faults and things like that. And churches, as often as not, maybe this is a sad statement, but I believe it's broadly true. A lot of times churches divide and ain't got anything to do with doctrine. Some churches are so far removed from doctrine, you can't even have a doctrinal conversation within the church. The churches are splitting over, well, they decided they're going to put tan carpet in there, and I voted for blue. And my grandmother, when she put carpet in the church, it was blue carpet. And we were the blue carpet faction. We're going to start another church, and we're going to put blue carpet in it. I mean, it's just nonsense. This is talking about, however, doctrinal issues. Like someone comes in and starts preaching something that's just not true and trying to lure away people. And you're supposed to mark those people and avoid them because those things are divisive. You are to divide yourself from that. If we invited a minister into the church, came into this pulpit, and they preached something that was clearly not in keeping with the doctrines of grace, we would divide ourselves from them in the sense that we wouldn't invite them back again. Uh, we would also talk to that minister and say, this is what you said, this is why we don't believe that, and this is why you shouldn't preach it. So there's some division involved in that. Look at Luke chapter 12 is another example of division. Now, you know, a lot of times people present kind of a rosy picture of Christianity as if it's all rainbows and roses, and the Bible doesn't paint that picture. The Bible talks about being persecuted, you know. Well, that's not a pleasant reality, but there are aspects of the Christian faith that are divisive. If you stand for something in this world, you're going to find that it creates some measure of division between you and those who are brokering in the world. And those may even be within the confines of your own friends and family. Chapter 12, verse 51, suppose ye that I am come to give peace on earth. Well, isn't that what we just did that just a couple of weeks ago? Peace on earth, goodwill toward men. Isn't that what the, the angels said? No. <laughs> well, what's he saying here? Suppose ye that I am come to give peace on earth. I tell you, nay, but rather division. Jesus Christ has come here, and what he's teaching is going to divide some people. Might as well embrace it. Doth that offend you? Well, then you've been offended by Jesus. That just means you're wrong. I've been there. Might as well come to terms with it. 
For from henceforth there shall be five in one house divided, three against two and two against three. This is in play in almost anyone's family. Sometimes in the immediate family, sometimes you go a little bit further out, and you're going to find within your own families there are divisions about what people believe about the Lord Jesus Christ. I mean, I don't say that to be hostile. It's evidently true. I mean, I've had conversations with so many of you, and you know, well, my, my son goes here, my daughter goes here, there's all these other things going on. There's going to be division among, even among God's people with respect to what Jesus actually taught. And um, what Jesus taught is offensive, and it kind of rubs against the carnal man in the wrong way, and people tend to kind of buck against it. But nevertheless, three against two and two against three, the father shall be divided against the son, and the son against the father, the mother against the daughter, the daughter against the mother, the mother-in-law against her daughter-in-law, and the daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. Standing for the truth is going to put you at odds with and divide you from people who you are otherwise incredibly close to. Members of your own family. It just is. There's a part of me that wishes I could tell you, you know, if you just follow the Lord, everybody is going to just, they're going to see the light of God in you and they're all going to just come running and, it, and they're all going to join the church and everybody's going to be happy. We're all going to be members of the same church. It does not work that way. I remember when I first started coming to a better knowledge and understanding of the doctrine of grace that was taught in the Bible, it was such an astonishing revelation to me that I wanted to tell everybody about it. And in my naivete, I thought, this is so great that when I tell it to somebody, they're just going to be jumping for joy and they're going to love it and they're going to come right along. Nothing could be further from the truth. That is the challenge, in many respects, of gospel ministry, is the realization that I have to represent this truth knowing full well that there's a whole lot of people, there's a whole lot of God's people who are not even going to rejoice in it and follow it. That can be quite discouraging as a minister, but you know what? It doesn't do me any good to sell myself the fantasy that it's any other way, because the Word of God says that's how it is. Jesus Christ here is saying there's going to be divisions over these issues right in your own family. You can turn a blind eye to it if you want to, but all you're doing is just rejecting what Jesus Christ told us is going to be the case. Now, that doesn't mean we don't continue to try to convert people. We should continue to have those conversations. And some of them are converted. Right? I stand before you as one of them. So it's not as though it's a totally lost cause. There are some people who will come to the Lord's church and and, uh, we should continue to do that. In fact... We should be more dedicated about sharing that aspect of what we believe. We should be more dedicated about trying to invite people to come and hear the truth. I believe this. A sincere seeker of the Lord Jesus Christ who sits and listens to six months worth of the truth being declared in the simplicity of Christ in the Old Baptist Church will come a long way toward believing what we believe. I just think it's inevitable. And I think there's so many churches in America today where people are so far removed from the Bible. They're drinking giant coffees and eating big old, you know, poppy seed muffins and sitting in theater seating and there's a fog machine and lights going off. It's like they're going to see Laser Floyd, you know. It's like a Pink Floyd concert. I'm dating myself with my music references here. (laughs) So many of those people... And you broadly look at them and say, well, they're going to church. They're Christian people. They're, 
that's true in, in some nominal sense, I admit. I don't doubt that they love the Lord or uh, they may be regenerate and all these sorts of things. But in terms of their instruction, they're really dwelling in ignorance. And if you strip away the fog machine, the laser light show, turn off the rock band, throw the Fender guitars in the dumpster over here, Let's get out the Bible and actually read it and look at what it says. If you're a sincere seeker of the Lord Jesus Christ, wants to know, want to know what He teaches, and you sit under six months of that type of instruction, I think you're going to come a long way. You're going to learn a lot. And a lot of our friends and neighbors that we maybe think, I don't know that they're ever going to come. I don't know if they're ever going to come because they're so enamored of the rock show that they won't ever show up here. Well, let's don't give up on trying to get them to come here. Many of those people starving to death spiritually. They don't know any better. They're like a child that you gave them access to the grocery store and said, feed yourself for the next 10 years. They're going to hang out in the candy aisle, tummy aches, throwing up all over the place, don't have any discipline with respect. They don't have any knowledge of what they actually need. And someone has told them the candy aisle is where all food is. They're just going to gorge themselves until they're sick. And they're too weak to realize that I probably ought to go over here to the produce there's some lettuce over here. Maybe I ought to eat some of that. You know what I mean? This is kind of what people do spiritually. Babes in Christ are set loose in the grocery store of Christendom, and they're just sitting there in the candy aisle, just pouring juju beebs down their, <laughs> down their throat, eating junior mints and Reese's peanut butter cups. And if you could sit them down and give them a decent meal, let them do that for six months, they feel a whole lot better. They might learn something. It would be very profitable to them. So in this year... We ought to try to undo some of the division that's out there. We know there's going to be division in play. That doesn't mean that we just throw our hands up and say there's nothing we can do about it. We need to continue to try to encourage those people to pursue the kingdom of God, and they'll profit from it immensely if they will. So, finally, multiplication. Let's see if I can get to multiplication here. Mark chapter 10. Now, that's pretty distressing when you hear, oh, there's going to be divisions within my own family. Well, we all know it's true. We all know it. It's just a reality. So everybody take a deep breath. This is reality. Jesus told us this is kind of how it's going to be. So um, thank you, Lord, for telling us that. It's a hard saying, but hopefully we can hear it, profit from it. But when you hear that things like that and division might be going on within your own family and friends, that sounds pretty distressing. Mark chapter 10 and verse 28 then Peter began to say unto him, Lo, we have left all and have followed thee. Peter's saying, Lord, we, we've given it all up. We're following you here. I made reference to this before, and it, it still haunts me. This idea that the Lord comes up to some of his disciples in the Bible and says, uh, they're in the middle of their work day, and he says, follow me, and they put out whatever they're doing and follow him. That's really incredible if you think about it. If you get out of the mindset of, well, that's a Bible story, that's something happened in the Bible, just think about Jesus Christ coming up to you at work one day when you're in the middle of doing a bunch of stuff and you, your boss is saying you've got to get this and that done and there's all these responsibilities and things you've got to get done. And somebody comes up to you and says, follow me, and you put out what you're doing and you follow him. That's, that's incredible. It's really incredible. Well, Peter's making reference to this. I've given it all up. We have left all and have followed thee. And Jesus answered and said, Verily I say unto you, There is no man that hath left house, or brethren, or sisters, or father, or mother, or wife, or children, or lands, for my sake, and for the gospels, but he shall receive an hundredfold in this lifetime, houses, and brethren, and sisters, and mothers, and children, and lands, 
with persecutions. It's not all rosy here, right? It's not all just happy stuff. It's with persecutions and in the world to come, eternal life. Well, that's multiplication. So there may be some situations in your life among family members, for example, where the division is not so casual anymore. Division is so strident that there's literally no contact with them. It's as though that person does not exist anymore, right? I am estranged from this person. That would seem to be a loss, and in some respect it is a loss. But the Lord here is talking about multiplication. He's talking about if this has occurred, for those who are pressing into the kingdom of God, following the Lord, if this situation has occurred and you've lost some of those relationships as a result of it, in the kingdom you can gain back 100-fold. Do you believe that today? Now I understand the pain if you're dealing with one of those estrangements. I understand the pain of that loss. But do you believe it? Do you believe by pouring yourself into the kingdom of God you're going to receive a hundredfold? I'm telling you right now, if I told you you could get a hundredfold on something, every single one of you would be interested. If I told you you could get a hundredfold on an investment, I've got an investment idea. You give me a hundred dollars and you get a hundredfold out of it. By the way, this is how preachers, this is how they end up with Gulfstream jets. I might be onto something here. There's power in teaching this, or you can teach it the wrong way. If I told you, you give me a hundred dollars, I'm gonna give you ten thousand back. Isn't that the math? Is that the right math? Yeah, hundredfold. You'd be interested if you believe me. Now, a lot of you wouldn't believe me, and in that instance I'm giving you, you'd probably be right not to believe me. Because I don't have any idea how I'm gonna get you a hundred times a hundred dollar bill if you give me one. But if I knew and I was trustworthy, and you believed it, you would be very interested in that. But do you believe me? Trouble with this verse is in verse 30. But he shall receive an hundredfold. This is a hard shall verse. So you're not going to be able to just turn a blind eye to this one. We're all hard shalls. We believe the shalls. We pride ourselves on that. That's what being a primitive Baptist is. This is what the Lord says shall happen. You got a hundred to one investment that Jesus Christ has just attached a shall to. Do you believe it? You're going to receive it in the form of houses and brethren and sisters and mothers and children and lands with persecutions. Now, this is not talking about you are going to become wealthy. It's not talking about the seed investment that some preachers are. Well, you give me a hundred dollars, you're going to get this money back and then you'll be rich. It's not a prosperity gospel in that sense. But you're going to gain, through your relationship with others in the kingdom of God, a family. The kingdom of God is more than just citizenship. We're all citizens of our communities, but we're not all families related to our next-door neighbors. Some of y'all are because you live in Donaldson. Some of your next-door neighbors are your family. Got to be careful with Donaldson examples. My next-door neighbors are not my family, but we're all citizens of the same community. See what I'm saying? In the kingdom of God, as you look out across those of us here, you're looking at citizens within the kingdom, but you're also looking at family members. One of the sweetest truths of the Christian faith within the kingdom of God is the ability to have brothers and sisters and mothers and daughters and sons 
in the faith. Family is a messy deal. It's increasingly messy in, in our time. And the Lord has given a hundredfold promise here that if you press into the kingdom of God, you may lose some family as a result of the things you believe. Some people will be hostile towards Christianity and you may become estranged from them. But as you press into the kingdom of God and you look at the citizens around you in the kingdom, you're looking at a family. And you can gain that family as brothers and sisters and mothers and fathers and daughters and sons in Christ to the extent that you press into it and receive that blessing. I know primitive Baptist people who have traveled all over the country. I'm not one of them. I've done very little traveling. I'm kind of a homebody as primitive Baptist preachers go. But there's some of them that have been all over the country for years and years and years, and they have never spent any money staying in a hotel room. If someone told you, I'm going to set you up on an arrangement here where you've got free Airbnb to any location you want to go to in the United States of America, you'd be like, that sounds awesome. I'm going to be going everywhere. It's great. It's as though I own all these properties because I can just show up and do it. That's what primitive Baptist preachers have been doing across the country for a hundred years. Assemblies going and meeting at different meetings and they're just staying at other people's houses because they've got those lands and those houses and those properties because they're just all part of the same family. It's just as if you were part of their natural family. In fact, in some respects, it's more so. Well, that's multiplication. If I had that investment where you give me $100 and I give you $10,000, I guarantee if you believe me, every one of you would take me up on it because I don't see anybody out here who couldn't use $10,000. <laughs> I know I could. I got three kids. I can use $30,000. Do you believe the Lord when He says He's going to multiply unto you brothers and sisters and mothers and lands and houses? We should believe Him. We've got to do some math in the kingdom of God. Thank you for listening to SuccessfulSavior.org, the ministry of Harmony Primitive Baptist Church. This has been Elder Dan Sammons preaching in one of our regular meetings. Come and join us as we worship God in the simplicity of Christ every Sunday morning at 416 North Hall Street in Donaldson, Arkansas. At Harmony, we don't have many things you'll find in the popular churches of our day, but we do have a successful Savior. We invite you to come and see.